Great opportunity. You can sign up for that uh, online. Also want to give parents another heads up. We, we are in the book of 1 Corinthians, so we're talking about Corinth a lot. And so this morning, uh, like last week, it's going to be a pretty mature topic. I, I won't be graphic, but I will probably use some vocabulary that might stir some things up. So if you wanted a quiet, peaceful lunch, now's your moment to leave. Okay, so the preliminaries are done. Turn to 1 Corinthians 7. That's where we're going to be this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I surveyed our staff this week, and I asked them to send me phrases that are commonly used or slogans that we tend to use that excuse our behavior. And what was really interesting to me is almost everyone on staff responded, right? Almost everybody had a phrase or two that they could think of immediately that uh, we use to excuse behavior. The most popular one I got back was this, you only live once, right? It's, it's got an acronym, so you know it's popular. You can text it. You only live once, therefore, do whatever you please, right? It's similar to what Paul said, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Uh, if there's no accountability, that is, right? You only live once. Uh, I just needed to get that out of my system. So it's all good now, because it's out. It's done, I'm done with that. Until the next time, right? Carpe diem. Uh, the only Latin many people know, which sometimes, sometimes is used for good things, but sometimes for things that are not so good. When in Rome, or Corinth, or College Station, right? When in Rome, do as the Romans do, or the popularized version, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. I don't bring any of my life experiences back home with me. They just stay, right? If you can't beat them, join them. One of my personal favorites, it's easier to ask forgiveness than to ask permission. <laughs> I confess having used that before. All right. Boys will be boys, won't they? To each his own. To each his own. It is what it is, which can be used for a wide variety of things, right? But essentially the idea is I'm not really responsible to act on the present circumstances to change anything. It is what it is. And then another personal favorite, I'm just being honest, by which I mean, I just said something that was really mean, but it's okay because it was true, right? (laughs) I may have crushed you in the process, but that's your problem because, hey, I'm just being honest. I'm just being honest. Now, our culture is not unique in looking for ways to excuse our behavior. In fact, when we started chapter six, we entered into a section, a long section in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, in which uh, Paul uh, exposes the phrases that the Corinthian believers are using to condone their immoral behavior. First one you ran into last week, all things are lawful for me. The, the law has been superseded, the law has been overcome, therefore I can do anything, right? Specifically, I can do anything with my body. 6.13, food is for the stomach, the stomach is for food, but God will do away with them both. Kind of a dualistic idea. There's the immaterial man and the material man. There's spirit and flesh. And since all the flesh and everything associated with the flesh will be done away with, therefore I can do anything with my body. It won't affect my spirit. 6.18, every sin that a man commits is outside the body. doesn't affect me. We're going to see another phrase in chapter 8 and another in chapter 10. We're going to encounter the next one here in chapter 7, verse 1. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. And what you should observe about each of these phrases is that there's an element of truth, but it's taken out of context and it's misapplied and it's used to excuse inappropriate behavior. 
The fact is we are morally responsible beings. There is no phrase that can get us off the hook. We're responsible. And what's happening in the church in Corinth is that they're excusing their behavior. The trend is this. There's more and more sex outside of marriage. There's less and less sex inside of marriage. And there's more and more divorce within the church. In other words, uh, just as in Paul's day in Corinth, as it is in our day, the family is under attack. Marriages are a mess in Corinth. And Paul writes to set that straight. And so what do we do in a culture in which marriage is under attack, in which our homes are under attack? What do we do? How do we respond? You know, the best response for us is to build really, really, really great marriages. That is the best response. And there are a lot of things that you can do to build a great marriage. Paul is going to give us just two this morning. I can't talk about the topic exhaustively. I want to stay in the text. There are two that Paul talks about. The first is stay physically intimate inside your marriage. Second, stay committed to your spouse. Stay physically intimate and stay committed. There's a lot more that you can do, but these are the two pieces of advice or commands that Paul issues. So I want you to read with me beginning in chapter 7 and verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Paul says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The phrase is this. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. And you should put that in quotation marks uh, in your Bible. It's a slogan. It's a statement. It's a phrase. The word to touch there is a euphemism for sexual intercourse in the marriage. Also in verse 2, he says, because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife. It doesn't mean go out and get married verb to have is another euphemism that means you should have sexual relationships with your husband. You should have sexual relationships with your wife. The phrase is, it is good for a man not to have sexual relationships with a woman, which is true outside of marriage, but is horribly destructive inside of marriage. They're taking the phrase out of context and misapplying it. Now, where does that phrase come from? And honestly, we don't know. We don't know. It could be from Greek philosophy. There was definitely a trend toward asceticism in Greek philosophy. So interestingly, in the city of Corinth, you have both immorality and asceticism. According to some Greek philosophers, abstinence from any form of sexual activity created a a spiritual power. It, It moved you toward greater enlightenment uh, in Gnostic dualism, the idea was that there, again, is you know, body and spirit. Body is earthly, spirit is eternal and heavenly, and spirit is good and body is bad. And so some in Corinth were using that to say, well, then we can do whatever we want with our bodies, and we can be immoral with our bodies, and it won't affect our spirits. Others were saying, no, we need to ignore and crush the body and not do anything that pleases the body so that we can focus upon the spirit. So it could have been 
from Greek philosophy. It could have been that there were members of the church that were just trying to repudiate the immorality in Corinth. We honestly don't know where the phrase comes from. What we do know is that they were taking it out of context and applying it to their marriages, and they were using it as an excuse not to have sexual intercourse in the marriage and to divorce their spouses. So they were using it in an improper way, and Paul will say this, you must stay physically intimate with your spouse in marriage. It's a command. More specifically, he will say, you're commanded to enjoy your spouse. It's a gift. It's also an obligation. It's a duty. Enjoy your spouse. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 18. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breasts satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. That's speaking to the husbands. Song of Solomon, it also speaks to the wives. Oh, how handsome you are, my lover. Oh, how delightful you are. His left hand caresses my head. His right hand stimulates me. Wow. (laughs) Genesis to Corinth. That's some pretty serious racy stuff. Because the Bible covers all of life. Speaking to the husband, Solomon said, Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies. Until the cool of the day, when the shadows flee away, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. By the way, there is no actual mountain called myrrh or hill called frankincense, so I'll let you kind of figure that out. Solomon's point is, I just want to camp out all day long, right there, right? So until the cool of the day, that's what I want to do. That's where I want to be. Solomon says, enjoy your spouse. Physically enjoy your spouse. You were designed to enjoy your spouse. Do you realize we were given bodies that were designed for pleasure? Enjoying beautiful sights with our eyes, wonderful smells, sounds, taste, touch, God made you with a body that can enjoy pleasure. That is a wonderful gift from God. Now, when I was uh, first married, the, kind of the, the manual on this, the Christian manual on sex for Christian marriage was called Intended for Pleasure, okay, which is an absolutely wonderful title. Okay, you, your body was intended for pleasure. Marriage was intended for pleasure. It was written by a guy named Ed Wheat. It's a picture of Ed and his wife, Gay. Now, I know you're saying to yourselves, what could I possibly learn about sex from this man, right? I know you're saying that. You're thinking it. That's, that's, that's a wild and crazy couple right there. Right? That's, you know you're thinking it, right? What do we learn from them? Well, here's the deal, right? Here's the deal. The human body hasn't changed much since the garden. It's still the same. From the garden until now, God made you with a body that was intended for pleasure. Now, it may be that you are married and and you don't enjoy your physical relationship because physically you can't. Maybe maybe there are things that create a barrier for you. Maybe it's painful. I've I've known couples like that. There are medical issues, and I encourage you, if that's the case, address that. Okay, go to a doctor. Address that. There are an estimated 40 million sexless marriages in the United States which is an absolute tragedy. Address that. Deal with that. 
Maybe you go to a doctor, you've gone to doctor after doctor, and you, you can't fix the issues. You can't fix the problem. I've known folks that that has happened before. You know, you can still touch. You can still touch. You can still caress. You can still uh, affirm and express affection and kindness and love and satisfaction with one another just with touch, even if everything doesn't work properly. I love this old poem by Spencer Michael Free. He said this, "'Tis the human touch in this world that counts, the touch of your hand and mine, which means far more to the fainting heart than shelter and bread and wine. For shelter is gone when the night is o'er, and bread lasts only for a day. But the touch of the hand and the sound of the voice sing on in the soul always.'" In marriage, we were designed to touch one another, to be with one another. And if you don't like to touch your spouse or you don't like your spouse to touch you, I want to tell you something. Something is wrong with your marriage. And you need to address that. I promise you, when you got married, one of the reasons you got married was because you hoped for, expected, anticipated that you would have physical pleasure in your marriage. Right? You don't have to raise hands or anything like that, okay? Right? That was one of your motivations, I promise you. And so if that has died out, we need to deal with that. Notice what Paul says in chapter 7, verse 5. He says, stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time. In other words, he says, you know, there may be a time where you, you, you take time off, but that's because of mutual agreement. And it's only for a period of time because regular, consistent Physical intimacy with your spouse is the norm for marriage. This is what it should, in fact, be. So maybe you're sitting there and you're saying, okay, so why are we talking about this in church? Uh, gosh, I just I brought my friend for the first time to Grace Bible Church. <laughs> this wasn't what I, I planned for, um, you know. Visitors, this, yeah, we don't do this every week. But sometimes we do. Because the fact is, our relationships with one another affect our relationship with God. Our relationships with one another also reflect our relationship with God. Our relationship with God is healthy. We are more likely to have healthy relationships with one another, particularly in marriage. Okay, particularly in marriage. If relationship with God is not healthy, marriage is probably not going to be healthy. And marriage isn't healthy, it's going to affect our relationship with God. All these come together. Recall that when Paul was searching for the best analogy to talk about our relationship with God, what did he choose? He chose marriage. Right? Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. And he creates this extended metaphor of marriage being a reflection of the way that God loves us. Our marriage should be a picture to the world of the way that God loves us. We should enjoy one another in the relationship of marriage the way that God enjoys us and delights in us. And we delight in God in that mutuality. He goes on, verse 28, So husbands also ought to love their own wives even as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. If you have something that is absolutely precious to you, what do you do with that thing? You invest in it. You nourish it. You cherish it. You care for it. Men and women, you are called and commanded by God to enjoy your spouse. Physically. Relationally. Spiritually. In every way. Second, 
please your spouse. Chapter 7, verse 3. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife has authority over her husband's body. In chapter 6, what we saw is the moment that you become a believer in Jesus Christ, your body belongs to God, right? God created it, so he owns it, but then he redeemed it again through Jesus Christ. He purchased it, and so your body belongs to God. You belong to God. And so everything you do with your body can be an act of worship to God. When you get married, you belong to another. You belong to your spouse. Your spouse belongs to you. You are no longer your own. We have a phrase that Tristan and I use in our house uh, from time to time, and we'll say to one another, you are my person. You are my person. Meaning you belong to me, and I belong to you. And Paul says, you belong to one another. Husband, you belong to the wife. Wife, you belong to the husband. Notice it goes both ways. It goes both ways. That means physical intimacy in a re- uh, the marriage relationship should never be used as a tool of manipulation, should never be withheld. It is a duty, it is an obligation. You don't, have, you don't have a right to withhold because you belong to the other. Therefore, he says, give. Stop depriving one another. So, do you want to have a great physical relationship with your spouse? Here's what you need to do. Stop being so self-centered. <laughs> Easier said than done, right? It's a work of the Spirit. But if you want to have a great physical relationship with your spouse, stop thinking so much about yourself and understand that even the physical relationship within marriage is an opportunity to give to that person. The problem is we live in a taking culture. Everything we are taught about sex in our culture is taking. It's conquest. It's taking. But the Christian view of sexual relationship is that it is an opportunity to give to the other person. Not to take from the other person. And so if I come to my relationship with my wife committed to giving to her physically, then anything that I receive back is extra. It's bonus. And I'm grateful and I'm thankful. But I don't demand anything. I come to give. That is, marriage is not, men and women, a 50-50 proposition. 50-50, you're never going to get together. It's just not going to work. Marriage is 100%, 100%. I come to give demanding nothing in return. She comes to give, demanding nothing in return. And when we are in that mode, we come together and it is a beautiful, beautiful thing. We both give and we both receive. And when we can walk away saying, you know, I feel like I received even more than I give, that's the place where we want to be. Okay? We want to be in that moment always. I want you to turn with me to chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. Probably the only passage that most people know in the book of 1 Corinthians uh, the most often read at uh, marriage ceremonies, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. Paul writes, Love is patient, love is kind, and it is not jealous. Love does not brag, and it is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own. It is not provoked, it does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. Love gives. Love gives, wow. That's what God does for 
us. God gives and he gives and he gives and he gives. And men, this is what you're commanded to do for your spouse, to give and to give and to give and to give, not to demand. Wives, your responsibility to your husband, give and give and give and not demand. Philippians chapter 2, another verse commonly read at weddings. Do nothing, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. That's a recipe for having an absolutely fabulous marriage. Now, practically, what does this mean? Husbands and wives, I I, want to challenge you to become a student of one another. So often when the physical relationship has broken down, it's because there's terrible communication. They're not talking with one another. It's a symptom that something else is gone gone wrong. It's a symptom normally that in other areas of the relationship, one or more spouses are taking and taking and taking or demanding and demanding, right? It's a a symptom. So I want to challenge you to start to talk and communicate. Particularly in this physical area of your marriage, Talk about what pleases one another. What can you do to please that other spouse without demanding? What does the other person enjoy? When I do a wedding, one of the challenges I give to the couple is become a student of your spouse. Become a student of your spouse. Learn your spouse. Learn what pleases your spouse in in every respect. In the bedroom, in the living room, in the kitchen, in finances. Seek to please the other and not yourself. I want you to think about this for a moment. You know, we, we invest, once we get married, we invest so much in, in our children, right? We pay attention to our children's education. We pay attention to all their sporting events. We pay attention to disciplining them and training them. We're reading books on discipline, right? We're doing, we're doing all kinds of stuff to invest in our children's lives. We go to the office and we invest in professional development. We're learning, we're thinking, we're growing, we're trying to become better in all these respects. But so often then in our marriage, we don't apply the same energy and, and, and diligence to say, no, I need to become a better spouse, I need to become a better husband. I need to become a better wife. How can I invest in that? I need to become better, actually, in my physical intimacy with my spouse. Realize the the best intimacy should be, physically, as you get older. Sure, Sure, the body may slow down, but you know one another. There's a deeper connection. The best physical intimacy is not on your honeymoon when you do not know one another. It should be getting better and better and better and better. Become a student of your spouse. Third, protect your spouse. Chapter 7, verse 2. But because of immoralities, each man should have physical intimacy with his own wife, and each woman is to have physical intimacy with her own husband. Why, Paul says? Because of uh, immoralities. A good marriage, physically, is a protection against sexual temptation. Is it foolproof? No. No, there can be physical intimacy. Sexual temptation can still remain. It's not foolproof. But I will tell you, when there is no physical intimacy, that is a recipe for disaster. You are setting up your spouse if you are withholding. That's why Paul says you have a duty, you have an obligation to give to your spouse because it is a protection. It's a a way to guard your spouse. Verse 5, Therefore stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer 
and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. See what he's saying? Is that even inside of the marriage, you can lack self-control. That is, you're coming to your spouse to take. You're lacking self-control. You're coming to take, not to give. But when you come together and say, let's pause for a moment so that we can pray and devote ourselves to the Lord, and you fast your physical intimacy, what are you doing? You're training yourself to give and not to take. You see how that works? But he says, but only do it for a period of time, briefly, and then get back to business. (laughs) Then get back to business, because that's natural, and that's normal, and that's healthy in the marriage context. And it's protection for your spouse. So, couple resources for you. If you're a student right now in the college class, they are going through a series called Song of Songs. Uh, the previous messages are all online, or you can jump into that series uh, and get the tail end of that uh, for the semester. It's a great opportunity. It'll be online next semester, too. You can listen to that. Book of Romance by Tommy Nelson. He, uh, he got famous for teaching the Song of Solomon. Great series. and wrote a book on the, the subject as well. Very direct, but also really good exegesis of the book of uh, Song of Solomon. Intimacy Ignited by Jody and Linda Dillow, also a book that Linda wrote, Intimate Issues. And then, you know, our favorite, there we go, Ed and Gay Wheat. <laughs> our heroes, Intended for Pleasure. There's another one for you, okay? My point is this. Be diligent to grow a great physical relationship inside of marriage. That is the will of God for you. Solomon says, lovers, enjoy one another. Enjoy one another. Now, second, stay committed. Stay committed. Uh, How many married folks do we have here this morning? Married? All right, okay. High percentage, high percentage. Uh, Did you ever make any promises to your spouse? Well, of course you did, right? When you got married, you you did uh, vows, they're called, vows. And I always uh, encourage couples when I do their wedding to write their own. I give them some ideas. I give them uh, vows that others have written in the past, but then I want them to write their own because they're making promises to someone else. And what's interesting is, you know, at that point in their lives, they'll promise anything, right? I mean, man, I've had someone go, no, you need to cut this a little bit. You just gave me a page of things you're promising. I'm like, yeah, right, whatever. But they'll promise anything at that point in time because they're looking at, at, at marriage. It's a sprint at that point in time, right? The wife, the, the, the bride, she is sprinting toward the wedding day and the groom is sprinting toward the honeymoon, right? They're, they're both sprinting, right? And they don't realize, no, this isn't a sprint. This is a marathon. And we need to have something in our tank when we hit that last mile. There, there's a little bit of kick still left. We want to finish really well. We want to finish really strong. And you know what does that for you? When the, the, the marriage relationship is secure and it is safe. When your spouse knows that you will endure for all 26.2. Stay committed. Now, the Apostle Paul here is not uh, writing a chapter on what can go wrong in any marriage. He's not talking about uh, every case in which, biblically, a Christian uh, can legitimately get divorced and every case in which a Christian could legitimately get married. He's not talking broadly in that sense about uh, marriage and divorce and remarriage. That's not what he's discussing. What he's talking to uh, specifically is, is a group of people who don't have legitimate reason for divorce and they're trying to get out and they're looking for a way out. And he's saying, here's the rule. Marriage is designed by God to be permanent. That's God's intention. Will there be exceptions? Yes, but there are exceptions. 
Will there be times when a marriage, it, it fails, and there are biblical grounds for divorce? Yeah, I believe there are. Matthew chapter 19 that we'll look at in just a moment uh, is one place. I actually did a sermon on Matthew 19 a, a few years ago, and I had Gary put it back on the website. It's prominent there. So if you want to study a little bit more about the topic generally of marriage, divorce, remarriage, it's Matthew chapter 19 sermon. You can get online and look at that. But specifically what he's talking about here is people who don't have a legitimate cause, and he's, sta- he's saying to them, stay committed, stay in it. The causes for divorce legitimately, biblically, are three in summary. Adultery, Matthew 19. Abandonment, that he'll mention here in 1 Corinthians 7. And then physical abuse, I believe. Okay? But Paul's point is this. The rule is, stay with it. Okay? That's the rule. And so he will first address Christians married to Christians in the church in Corinth, and then Christians married to non-Christians in the church in Corinth. And okay? so read with me chapter 7. In verse 10. But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not leave or divorce his wife. Again, there's not biblical grounds for divorce, and so he says, don't leave one another. Now, why were they tempted to leave? We don't know. It could be, again, this this ascetic idea that we're we're more spiritual if we're not physically uh, intimate with one another. We don't know. But what what Paul does is he points them back to the teachings of Jesus on this. So I want to look with you briefly in Matthew 19 and verse 4. In Matthew 19, verse 4. Let's start in verse 3. So some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to, to uh, divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever? There's no cause, no fault. He can just divorce her. And he answered and he said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus doesn't go back to the law. Jesus goes back to creation. He goes back to creation. He says, this is God's intention for marriage. What God has joined together, let no man separate. The two shall become one flesh. They are separate, they become one. Which is not talking simply about the, the physical intimacy. It's talking about one brand new family. They are one. And once they are one, God's intention is that they stay together as one forever. That's God's intention. Notice what he says. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. In Hebrew, it is uh, literally uh, a man shall forsake his father and mother and he shall stick to his wife. And what's interesting is in the context of the culture in Genesis, it was actually the wife that left her family and came to the husband's home, and he would build a room on. Remember, we've talked about that before. He'd build a room onto his father's home. So what's being spoken about here is not literal. That the son literally leaves it. What's, what's being spoken about is uh, figurative. It's relational. Particularly since the husband is going to be geographically so close to his family, he must forsake his family. That is, his wife now becomes his highest priority his choicest possession, his most cherished good. 
above all else. She is number one. That applies to the wife as well. She belongs to him. So if there is a conflict, which does he choose? He chooses his wife. If there's a conflict, which does she choose? She chooses her husband. They, they, they forsake their own families and they stick to one another and the two have become one flesh. They belong to one another. The opposite of this is a mama's boy. Right? Don't be that guy. Don't be that guy. The opposite of this is, is the woman who's always wanting to go home to her family. I remember hearing a story one time about a, a young woman first married. She called her parents and, and she said, we're not doing well, I want to come home. And her dad listened to her and then he responded. He said, uh, you are home. Stay. Okay. When there is a sense of permanence in marriage, we have a sense of safety and security and that's the context in which we can grow the most. Do you understand that? that that's, that's what the grace of God does for us. God says to us, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You are permanently stuck to me. You belong to me, God says. That creates security. Okay. Solomon put it like this. Put me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. Many waters cannot quench love nor will the rivers overflow it. There is absolutely nothing that we can do that removes God's love for us. And we need to communicate to our spouses that I am with you and I am with you forever. I'm committed. And so Paul first addresses Christian married to Christian, and then second, he's going to talk about a Christian married to a non-Christian. Verse 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12. But to the rest I say, not I, but the Lord. And Paul's not saying my, my opinion is not scripture. What he's saying is Jesus addressed this first issue directly. He didn't address the second issue, Christian married and non-Christian, directly. So I'm going to tell you what I think and what the Lord has revealed to me. So I say to you, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. Again, what's going on in their minds? It may be that they thought, well, you know, marriage to a non-Christian defiles me. My non-Christian husband, my non-Christian wife is still an idolater. They're bringing this into the home. And Paul says, no, remember that marriage is rooted in creation. Okay? It's not part of, of Judaism merely or part of Christianity. It's part of humanity. And so the will of God for you is that you stay married. Now, if you are not married, you are single the will of God for you is that you marry a believer. Paul will say you may marry, but marry in the Lord. But if you're already married to a person who's not a believer, God's will for your life is stay right where you are. Stay committed to that person. As he will say later, how do you know that you might not be the pathway of salvation for that person? Stay right where you are. Because security and stability and longevity and enduring marriage, that is the will of God. Stay. Verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. What in the world is Paul talking about? Paul's making an argument as to why the Christian should remain with their non-Christian spouse. And I want you to think in Old Testament terms. Think clean and unclean. 
Okay, think in the will of God, outside of the will of God. What he's saying is this. Believing spouse. It is the will of God for your non-believing husband, non-believing wife, to stay married to you. So don't leave. That is, they are clean. That is, this is the will of God. A marriage is a gift to humanity. Not just to Jews, not just to Christians, but to all humanity. God's design, even for non-Christian married to non-Christian, is that they would have a permanent marriage. And so he says that is sanctified, or that is holy, that is clean, that is the will of God. Likewise, your children, what is best for them, what is within the will of God for them, what makes them sanctified, set apart, holy, is when you stay together. That's the will of God. It doesn't mean that the non-Christian is automatically getting into heaven, or that the children are necessarily moral and good kids. It means this is the will of God. This is the will of God. So, stay. What is Paul's point? Stay. That's Paul's point. Now, a couple of resources. If you are a believer married to a non-believer, book by Joe Barry, it's called Beloved Unbeliever. This is written specifically to wives. The second book, Surviving a Spiritual Mismatch in Marriage, Lee and Leslie Strobel. They were non-believers when they got married. One became a believer first, the other became a believer later. This is for husbands and wives. It's a challenging road to walk. But as Paul says, how do you not know? Then maybe you will be the pathway through which your unbelieving spouse meets their Savior, Jesus Christ, because you stayed. So how do we apply this? Well, if you're single, you're thinking, well, I guess there's something for me next week. All right. Um, and you're right. You're right. Actually, Paul is going to talk next week about singleness. Or if you're divorced, you're single again. Paul is going to say, uh, learn to be content right where you are which sounds so blah, kind of, right? What he means is embrace the opportunities that you have in singleness. Embrace those. It's a gift. You may go, well, it's not the gift I want. Can I have another gift, right? Well, it's still a gift. Paul says it's still a gift because there's an opportunity to not be distracted by marriage, but instead to devote yourself fully to serving Jesus Christ in his kingdom. If you're in a troubled marriage, man, I'm, I'm begging you to fight for that marriage. It takes two. You may not be able on your own. If your spouse is not willing to fight with you, you may not be able to save that marriage. But as far as it depends on you, you fight. You do everything that you can. You need friends around you who who know what's going on so they can pray for you. A lot of times what happens is people become so isolated, no one knows what's happening in their marriage. That's secrecy. And I will tell you, I don't believe in secrecy. I believe in confidentiality, but not secrecy. And secrecy is very dangerous. So you need confidential friends that you can trust, that you can pour out your heart to. You know they are safe and they will pray for you and they will support you and they will encourage you when it gets really, really rough and you feel like you're ready to quit. Okay, fight for your marriage. And if you can, get your spouse to fight along with you for your marriage. It may be that you need to address that issue of physical intimacy. Or maybe the physical lack of physical intimacy is just a symptom and what's happening is that you two are not going deep with the Lord, and so you're taking and taking and taking from one another. You need to address that. Hey, there, are, there are great counselors here in town that we can recommend to you. There are godly couples that we can recommend to you that can help you work on your marriage. If you have a stagnant marriage, then get busy. <laughs> Be incredibly discontent 
with your stagnant marriage, right? And stir it up. Hey, you're investing all this time in improving yourself in all kinds of other areas, and you're paying for a personal trainer at your gym and yada, yada. Well, you know, fire the trainer and hire a counselor or somebody to stir you up, right? Or get around some other great marriages, right? Find couples. If all of your friends have terrible, terrible marriages, you need new friends. I'm just saying, right? It is what it is, right? I just had to say the truth, right? Yeah. Find friends who stimulate you, encourage you to have a wonderful, great marriage. Don't be content where you are. Buy a book, read a book, go to a seminar, Family Life Conference with Cruz, wonderful seminar. Commit yourself to having a great marriage, to, to, to passing through that tape and just busting through, right? You may say, well, we've got a good marriage. Well, don't be complacent. Don't be complacent. Invest because it's a marathon and Satan is coming after your marriage. He's going to attack your marriage because he hates marriage. But God loves marriage because it's a picture of the beautiful way that Jesus Christ loves us. So let's build them well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us great marriages. I pray that we would commit ourselves to working to build great marriages. I pray, Father, that you would guard and protect us from Satan's attacks. I pray, Father, that we would go deep with you so that we have the resources to give and to give and to give and to demand nothing in return. Father, I thank you for this gift of marriage and what it can be to the world. I pray, Father, for those who are in troubled marriages or those who have lived through a broken marriage. I pray that you bring great healing to their hearts and that you'd show them the path forward, how they can live really healthy and whole and satisfying lives and serve you in so many wonderful ways. Father, I thank you for your grace that is showered upon us, broken sinners who are desperately in need of you. It's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Spouses, enjoy one another this week. That's your homework.